Hello, my little undead fishies. I was going to write one of my gorgeous intros, but our topic is tricky and I didn't want to give my bit away, so let's just be casual. Hi. Welcome to Zombie Fishbowl, a podcast about random shit. I am your American hostess, and with me is my charmingly brilliant and brilliantly charming co-hostess, Danielle, from the sexy, hot, tropical isles of England. Hello. Hello. (laughs) I think that was a wonderful intro, actually. Oh, good. <laughs> it put a smile on my face. That's that's the point. Nice. Yes, that's that's what I'm aiming for. If I'm not being all florid and fancy with my intros, at least I can make you laugh. Yeah, well, or put you in a good state of mind. Yes, you brilliantly charming, sexy woman. Oh, no, that's too much. <laughs> hot, hot pants. Sorry. <laughs> I have had half a banana and no caffeine. So, you know. I'm as serious as I can be. We can't possibly be more opposite at the moment because it's um about ten to nine at night here. So I've had me tea. I've had uh, <laughs> fish and chips for me tea today. Oh. Um, and I've had uh, I've had me pudding. I've got a nice cup of tea with me and uh, some banana milk because I am a grown child. <laughs> um, and I also have marshmallows. Oh, I want marshmallows. Those are huge and colorful. Yeah, they are. They're vegan. They were expensive. I treated myself. <laughs> they look expensive. They they look like the kind of marshmallows that would be like a, a buck a piece. Yeah, this was twenty five pounds. Holy cow. Yeah. That's 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 awesome though. They better be delicious. The yellow ones are banana. <laughs> right. They're they're beautiful. Anyway. <laughs> Just thought I'd tell you about me mellows. Yeah, yeah. So uh, do we have any updates this week? Oh, gosh. It's been a while since yeah. we've made a podcast. Um, no one's written in. No one's credited us on anything. I've not got anything really new to say about the podcast. Maybe that, boy, isn't podcasting becoming a really popular thing to do? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I think when we started it, there was this wave of podcasts happening and it just, it's just not stopped. And now everybody's stuck at home. Like, what are we going to do? Let's do a podcast. So, you know, I don't blame them. No, not at all. And also I think that this, this, the, uh, it's how, it's how people are manifesting this idea that people give a shit what other people think. You know, exactly. it's like, the, yeah, in the big scheme of things, um most of us are just talking to each other here um and podcast to podcast as well like there's very little like like we're not like leaving the village kind of thing and yeah yeah they're gonna get all screwed up we're gonna end up with like inbred podcasts and (laughs) (laughs) like little deformed children of podcasts yeah 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 My, my favorite thing about the podcast community is the way that they just swarm people asking for podcast recommendations on twitter (laughs) oh god if you ever want perfect revenge on somebody ask them to ask twitter for podcast recommendations they will slowly go insane and just start like weeping it's great it should be a thing that people joke about like are you feeling lonely are you looking to make new friends (laughs) do you want some attention on social media just post this on your twitter anybody got any podcast recommendations oh yeah and let them come flying to you you will make 200 friends very quickly (laughs) it's freaking insane new followers well and at first you know i was just like okay yeah sure you know hey if you're looking for a podcast check us out and then i realized that the people like if you go and actually look at their 
their pages, there's a, a follow-up tweet of just like, oh my Jesus, God, what happened? Like They're just so overwhelmed by what just happened to them. So now, instead of trying to plug our podcast on these tweets, I just go, do you regret this tweet yet? <laughs> yeah. I'm so sorry for this. You have our condolences. You know, so that's that's been my my new shtick on Twitter because yeah, oh man, it's brutal. Meta. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> um no, I got no updates. Uh nothing. Uh, we're just we're living our lives as best we can in this little bit of crazy that we're still all going through. And, you know, it's taken us longer to do each episode because we're tired and we're doing stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you get them when you get them. And we say this every time, you know, we'll, we try and be more, um, uh, what's, what's the word? Productive with this thing, but we also don't want to sacrifice our mental health and all that. So, you know, that's, you get them when you get them. And again, if you want them more, all you got to do is ask. We are yeah. we are eager to please people. Like, we would be <laughs> eager to please you. Um, That's absolutely the best way to motivate us is to um, just kind of uh, make us feel bad. <laughs> yeah, or even just, just show us any bit of attention. We're like, oh, yeah? Yeah? You want more? <laughs> you got and it. also keep in mind that uh, in about two and a half months... I will be totally free. Like, yay! For the foreseeable, because I don't have a job lined up waiting for me, but I'm trying to change that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, basically two and a half months' time for new listeners will be my graduation. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, not my graduation, but my, my submission date for my uh, uh, master's. So I won't be. Um, busy for yeah. a while after that <laughs> unless I go straight into a PhD which is what I'm doing trying to apply for PhDs but let's not get into that right now because got it <laughs> people don't people don't really want to hear about it to be honest and then also I'm it's not really that interesting it's like well if I get it then I'll celebrate it but at the moment it's yeah. just applications got I it. look bloody good on paper though nice no I bet you do you're real sexy on paper. I've got a seven-page CV, Melanie. A seven-page CV. That's so hot. I know. <laughs> oh, before you write in, academic CVs are allowed to be long. They're not like the kind of CVs that you send to like companies that has to be like one or two pages. Academic CVs, they want everything. And mine's about seven pages. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Anyway, not to brag. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, so before we dive into our topic, do we have any things we want to do, our thing? Okay, my thing is that um, I'm in therapy, and that's a good thing. Yay, therapy! Uh, to quote, to quote uh, Doom Patrol, therapy! Anyway, yeah, like, um, therapy! <laughs> uh, so yes, we love Clint. And basically one of the things that I'm learning to do is to let go of the rules and regulations that I've created for myself. So I was talking to Melanie about how I had like built up particular parameters and, you know, um, expectations for how I conduct myself in preparation for this podcast and how I perform it and how I um, research it and everything like that. And I've decided to um, 
basically rip up my rule book. But I have to do yeah. one thing at a time. I have to do one thing at a time. So uh, for those of you out there that suffer from perfectionism, and I'm not just talking about like she likes to put things in just the right places and oh isn't that kooky kind of perfectionism like i'm not talking monica from friends i'm talking about um perfectionism that um makes you not want to leave the house because you won't be up to standard for certain things but we won't go too much into that it's just that i had a very particular idea of what i was doing here and it made it not fun yeah. Made it not fun for for a little while. It was fun when I was doing it because I enjoyed Melanie's company, Melanie's Ace. But the preparation for it was miserable, and then the um, fallout from it, regretting the way that I performed, mm. and then having to edit that was really feeding into my self criticism. So I, instead of having like this shit like oh believe me this was a struggle I wrote over 2,000 words before I noticed what I was doing yeah so there is there is a preliminary document of around 2,000 words prepping for this (laughs) podcast (laughs) which I will dip in and out of because it has some good facts and some good stuff in it but essentially now I have got eight pink post-it notes yeah on my desk which is gonna give me just the the sort of pointers to go from place to place and I'm just gonna kind of tell Mel tell Melanie what I find so cool about this topic and and I'm gonna pretend no offense I'm gonna pretend like y'all aren't there yeah yeah going at it raw I love it yes so that's my thing my thing is letting go of those um um what what rules and regulations that you've made for yourself that nobody else imposed on you yeah Just letting go of them um is like a huge part of um <laughs> recovering from trauma yeah that has left you with lots of really unhealthy coping mechanisms no but I'm, I'm yay excited. Therapy. Yay therapy. Yes, absolutely. And, and I'm excited to see, you know, I, I really do. I feel like this is going to be a much better format going forward too. Just, just be a little less strict on ourselves. Be a little less stringent about it. Yes. Yes. <clears throat> and, and just to like ride on that theme of fun. I'm not, um, sorry, my background right now is like an, an animated fun background for Melanie to look at instead <laughs> of it just being my bookcase. It's the, uh, Queen Elizabeth the First's room from Blackadder. <laughs> Which I nailed, by the way. She yeah. asked me if I recognized it, and I freaking nailed it, because I'm a nerd, and I'm proud of it. And I just keep looking at it, too. I'm just like, oh, man, it is really lovely. It's a lovely I room. Just, yeah, I thought I'd give you a lovely thing to look at, yeah. <laughs> look, look that I'm, like, looking over my shoulder like it's actually there. <laughs> that window is gorgeous. Oh, no, wait, that's not there. <laughs> Damn. Anyway, it's messing that's with thing. your head. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's so, not the Tudor. Anyway. <laughs> uh, my thing is a little less, um, I guess, sincere. No, whatever. Um, I know you're not a huge fan of the more modern Doctor Who's, but I started watching them with my son because uh, I'd watched them with him when I was when he was teeny teen tiny and he just really had no interest except for the occasional like jellyfish robot or something he'd be stoked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I'm all like, I think he's at the age now where I think he'll really dig it. So 
we're watching it and he is he's so he's obsessed with it and it's fantastic and it warms my heart I'm very very happy and I just I always forget how much it hurts to have Doctor Who lust um it just it's it's like having a crush on an anime character it's like there's literally nothing I can do with this just this hot heat in my body for this person right now and that that frustrates the hell out of me but you know I'm excited that my son's watching Doctor Who with me. <laughs> oh my god! Wait till I tell Turner. Yeah, he's he's just he's just gonna be like, what? He's getting into it, right? Right. <laughs> what can I give him? It'll be like, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, for those who don't know, Turner uh, is like obsessed. Like, I, I, I'm not going to underplay it, but like, you think you're a Doctor Who fan? It, you've got nothing on not you melanie but you listening like you've got nothing on on him yeah like, you ain't got, shit. <laughs> um but he's not one of those weird doctor who fans okay <laughs> just want to make that quite clear it's like we're trekkies but we're not one of those weird trekkies <laughs> yeah 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 in fact they wouldn't accept us because we prefer trekkie to trekker yeah yeah that's right because they got all all up in arms about trekkies yeah whatever Trekkie sounds better. I'm sorry. It just does. Yeah, Trekker just sounds like you like to go walking through woods or something. Yeah, and eat really hard cardboard like <laughs> things. Yeah, just hidden <laughs> valley things. You know, they're just hard and cardboard. That that's not Trekkers. Yeah. Absolutely, just nothing but protein bars and like you know hiking boots. Blisters. <laughs> <laughs> Which is definitely not what they are. Okay. So, yeah. No, but anyway, no, that's so exciting. That's really exciting. So you've started at the beginning with Eccleston. Yes. Who is okay. so hot. I'm sorry. He's so hot. You lusted after Eccleston. That's oh, so funny. Oh, God. I want him so bad. We just watched the uh, the two-parter, um, the Empty Child yes. episodes. Okay. Um, Are you my mummy? Is that that one? Yeah. 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 And uh, when they're dancing and he's all close to Rose and I'm just like... <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever lusted after a doctor, if I'm honest. I, well, to be fair, I mean, you know me. I kind of lust after, like, almost everyone. <laughs> yeah, that I is just, true. I just have that slutty brain where I'm just like, I'd bang it. I'd tap it. I'd bang it. Bring it on. Let's get naked. You, <laughs> you are Jack Harkness, aren't you, dude? I, I am, 100%. There was a thing on Facebook like years ago. It said, if you could combine any two fictional characters to create you, who do you think it would be? I'm all Jack Harkness and uh, Pam Poovey. That's me. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Easy. Done. Didn't even have to think. Bam. Boosh. <laughs> Bosh. Done. No messing. Yes. All right. And so with that, let us breathe in the joy of introducing Doctor Who to a new generation and letting go of, of you know, stringent things that, that are unnecessarily uh, harder on us, uh, are harder on us than they should be, and just sort of going with the flow and having fun with it, all right? On the count of three. One, two, three. So, yeah. Um, do you want to go first or shall I go first? Well, you got to define. Yeah. So, okay, let, okay. So today's topic, as outlined last time we recorded, was uh, non-Western magical beliefs. So 
Um, I needed to therefore kind of set the parameters for what non-Western meant. Mm-hmm. So in order to do that, I need to define the West. And then I need to define magic. So to give you an idea of what qualifies as magic, right? That's what usually the definition and, and background <laughs> section is. So I went on like a, I, I, like I said, I wrote absolutely shit tons. And I did this whole big spiel about how the West has originated in ancient Greece and yada, yada, yada. And how it's a byword for white culture. <laughs> and... I don't want to perpetuate that and all that sort of shit. But basically, I'm just going to sum it up nice and nice and simply for everybody. But essentially, non-Western is um, anything that predates the Greeks and um, is not from like Europe. So yeah. Western civilization is is uh, what was born in ancient Greece and spread into Europe and therefore spread all over the world in the colonies. But its 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 root is in Europe, and essentially it does mean white people. But that's just because that's where we're from. We're yeah. from Europe. We we were white skinned people because we didn't get much sun. So <laughs> it's just it's just it's our ethnicity rather than our race, if you will. So we're we're like pale. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's about it. So any any anything that didn't um, postdate the Greeks. Or uh, and therefore originate in that sort of Greek civilization ideal, that sort of philosophical religious ideas that came out of ancient Greece. As long as it didn't find its root there, mm-hmm. it counts as non non Western. And then magic is a little bit tricky. It's also a tricky thing to um, define. Um, so I I, I kind of just went to the dictionary. Yeah. Um, and uh, essentially, magic is uh, the use of um, means like charms or spells um, that you believe to have supernatural powers um, and that you can use that power over natural forces. You can use rites and incarnations um, and influence things um, seemingly from a supernatural source. Or also something that seems to cast a spell. So even if it only creates the illusion of, um, uh, you know, power, that that Mm -hmm. counts as magic. Um, Also the art of producing illusions by sleight of hand. Totes magic. um, Yeah, totally magic. Now I personally, now this wasn't in the dictionary, but I included it. And then I was validated when I read my magic from witchcraft encyclopedia that I also I also include um, hypnosis and mesmerizing people as magic because only when you're using certain language. So if you're telling somebody you're suggest using suggestion and hypnosis as a psychological tool, then you're not using magic. But we all know that people who try to influence people and mesmerize them and, and, and enchant them like mm-hmm. vampires they're using hypnosis in a magical way so yeah. it all is about the way that they're using that power so i like to include those two yeah yeah so but if i go to my encyclopedia of magic and witchcraft i can also give you a nice little definition of magic uh, right actually i'm not going to read it but i'm going to also <laughs> 
pretty much nailed it already. Yeah. It's just, I haven't, I just haven't included spirit yet. Oh yes. So um, uh, the the thing that I'm missing is the the inclusion of the uh, belief in the spirits. So spirits are sort of responsible for this magic power. Mm-hmm. But we'll go into that, I'm sure, a little bit later. I think the definition, the way that I defined magic, ironically, was in a very Western way. Yeah. This very sort of, um, you know, um, supernatural forces and things like that. Um, but when I get into my topic, I'm going to smash all of that up into a million pieces. I'm being a little bit too enthusiastic now. I need to calm down. Take some banana milk (laughs) just drink your banana milk just take a deep breath (laughs) all right i'm cool i've got it right um so in short (laughs) our topic today covers any magical belief held by a non-western culture yep all right nice so do you want to go first should i break it up me then you or well, that depends. What's your topic? What, what have you chosen? I chose a village in India. Village in India. That's intriguing. Yes. Right, well, leave that as a cliffhanger for the listeners, and I'll go first. All right, let's do it. Okay, so, again, just a little forewarning. I wrote another thousand words here about... <laughs> what the environment on the planet was like during the Paleolithic. <laughs> so there's just a little <laughs> caveat there. I basically started to write you guys an essay about my topic. And yeah. then I was like, what the fuck am I doing? This is ridiculous. So I'm doing my bit on uh, cave art. Okay. Nice. And you're like, that's not magic. Right? That's not magic. Cave art is not magic. <laughs> Let's not have to do it anything. Yeah, I know, right? So she's stretching the parameters of this topic yet again. <laughs> I'll get to it. Okay. Nice. So I've realized, <laughs> I realized that um, when I started this podcast, I wanted to be the archaeologist. And I always kind of wanted to relate every topic that I, that we pulled out of the hat or the random topic picker. Um, I wanted to relate it back to my chosen vocation i want yeah. to relate it back to archaeology and i've totally not been doing that for like ages so i thought as soon as magic non-western magic came up i thought cave art now that's because i know more about cave art than you do and this is true i know <laughs> and i know and you being proverbial like everybody and um except for if you're like an archaeologist listening to this and then i'm sorry then you probably know more than me but um <laughs> It popped up straight away and I thought, I can do archaeology this time. So let me take you on a journey. Yes. Right. The time period that we're looking at here, um, when cave art was being uh, done. Created. (laughs) Painted. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, The ones that I'm going to talk about anyway are from an era called the Upper Paleolithic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right so fun fact time just to start us off what we refer to as the stone age is actually three periods of time yeah okay so we've got the paleolithic 
which is the old Stone Age. Paleo being old, lithic being stone. Old Stone Age. The Mesolithic, Middle Stone Age. Mm. And Neolithic, New Stone Age. Nice. Okay. <laughs> and each three of these periods are very, very, very different. They have very different environments and they have different things going on and people are doing different things. And it's, it's honestly over hundreds of thousands of years. Okay. Um, people have been around in um, for about 1.4 million years and 5 million, uh, sorry, people. I mean, um, Homo sapiens sapiens. Yeah. So we've been knocking about a bit, but the Upper Paleolithic started about uh, 50,000 years ago. Okay. So and lasted till about 10,000 years ago. And it's the it's the earliest part of the of the Paleolithic, the Upper Paleolithic, because the Paleolithic is also divided into the upper, the middle, and the lower. <laughs> because <laughs> it's such a long period of time you can't it's like the stone age would end up being one and a half million years ago yeah like one and a half million years so you can't really call one and a half million years a whole age like there's way too much shit going it's way too complicated so the upper p as i like to call it um <laughs> is when the neanderthals are um systematically humped out of extinction by homo sapiens um highly simplified but correct at time of recording yeah uh, <laughs> um and everything is warming up and getting hotter yeah because uh we're coming out of an ice age i don't want you to get the wrong idea it's only getting hotter wherever the neanderthals and the homo sapiens sapiens are humping everywhere else is still pretty cold so we're we're hunter gatherers we have no houses um, there's no permanent settlement, nothing, no, nothing like that yet. Um, we're moving around, chasing uh, the animals around the landscape and uh, resources and uh, weather patterns and things like that. And we're very transient. We don't like to stay in one place for too long. And we're using stone tools, which is why it's called the Stone Age. But I don't want you to be thinking of like fucking rocks, like like proper nice lithics that have been worked and crafted and they're wonderful i'm not really super super into lithics but um i mean they got us where we are today yeah they were gorgeous gorgeous we wouldn't be, if we wasn't we wouldn't still be here if it weren't for lithics because of the megafauna and the megafauna are pretty much as cool as they sound we're, we're like fucking massive gigantic animals so versions yeah. of things that we have now, but jumbo-sized, right? Yeah. So we've just come out of the Ice Age, and they're all woolly as well, so they're covered in fur. Um, everybody kind of knows the woolly mammoths and the woolly rhinos. I think they're pretty, like, like they know about them. So yeah. the woolly mammoths and the woolly rhinos, they were around in the Upper Paleolithic, but also giant deer. And and by giant deer, I mean seven feet fucking tall with 12 foot fucking wide antlers oh this sounds terrifying i love it i love it <laughs> okay so we're like you know yeah that's that's what also when we had like you know 10 foot tall like sloths and shit right yeah yeah, yeah no thank you everything i think i think the sloths might have been i don't know about the sloths sloths were like human, at least at least human sized i think they were pretty fucking big 
Yeah, they were, but I can't remember if they coincide. Okay, yeah, fair enough. I don't know if, if they were Mega when we were Homo sapiens sapiens or if they were Mega when we were uh, another ancestor, is okay. what I'm saying. So fair. I'm not quite sure. But at, at one point, sloths were Mega, yeah. It's because of resources that we got smaller and also because we came out of the Ice Age and it got warmer and we didn't need to be so bloody big anymore. It's okay, <laughs> <laughs> how um, evolution works, but we'll get onto that another day. Yeah, so yeah I'm, love I'm it. Setting all this, sort of setting all this background for you, so that you know that it's cold. We're using stone tools, and um, there's mega like huge animals out there. So like, what are we doing? Like, yeah. What are we doing? What are people doing? Right. What what we're doing is developing actually really complex social um uh structures and we're actually uh in the upper paleolithic you're seeing uh funerary rites um proper like burials and traditions and you're seeing types of buildings which aren't that aren't permanent settlement buildings but they're building things out of like like for example tusks of um woolly mammoths making structures out of them almost like teepees out of bones and things like that yeah so and, they're no longer like hiding in caves now they're making structures for themselves yeah yeah and and essentially you know using the resources that they are um coming upon and being really getting really good at hunting um, and using those resources to build their society and to build, like I said, houses and, and stuff like that, because it's actually a bit more comfortable. Well, it's not house, sorry, not house. Edit out, not house. They're not living in houses yet. Temporary structures like tents. So mm-hmm. the hotting up hide tents kind of thing. Now, the, uh, that things like that don't tend to um, last in the archaeological record because we're talking, like I said, it's like um, the, the closest... Sorry, that the the, the the most recent of the Upper Paleolithic would be 10,000 years ago, and it just simply hasn't um, lasted. But there is evidence of these like structures made out of tusks and bones and stuff like that. Yeah. So, um, but the burial rites are there, um, which are really really interesting. People are getting buried with beads. So this is you know really quite sophisticated cultures and. So it's really not fair to call people from the Stone Age like cavemen and things like that. They're really intelligent. They had language, they had culture, and they had obviously got belief systems because there's these traditions. Archaeologists spend the majority of their time interpreting possible cultural um, identities from burials because that's pretty much what lasts in the record. So you have to look at burials. And um, luckily, in this particular time period as well, we have cave art. Because one of the things that people are also doing is they're painting shit on the walls of caves. And there's a lot of speculation out there about why. Like, why? Mm-hmm. why, why? What, what is it about the people then that they started to make this... Um, particular expression of cultural of, of, of identity yeah to document stuff in some way yes yes well that's one of the theories documentation actually so there's like things like um 
you know, to create a history of events, to communicate for art for art's sake, because uh, there's the argument about whether or not it is actually art, because I'm not even going to get into that. Uh, yeah, of- I've heard that argument. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I obviously think, yes, it's art. But <laughs> when you start like chipping away at the definition of art, you start thinking about all lots of different things and it becomes a whole different topic. So um let's just say that I'm going to include it in my personal definition of art because I think that it is uh, an expression of the um my definition of art would be an expression of the non-tangible into the material world. That's my personal so if something is a concept or a construct or a thought or an idea or a dream and it's it has no physical form, but then you make something physical out of it and bring it into the material world, I consider that art. Yes. So that also includes craft and invention and technology, and I understand that. So it's a very broad definition. But I think that a processor can be beautiful. Amen. Thank you. All right. So there we go. There's so any expression of the self, any expression of a concept or idea is art. So we're going to call it cave art. And it, you get examples of cave art. Let me look at my notes here. Oh, I've lost it, but it doesn't matter. It's fucking everywhere. So we've got like Africa, uh, Central and South America, um, Australia, Asia, South Asia, and Europe is pretty famous for it. Um, and in fact, the examples that I'm going to talk about are European examples, but it's pre-Greek, so it is it's, it's non-Western. <laughs> it counts. It's like it's like pre-everything, guys. Like we're talking 10,000 years ago. I can stretch this, but the examples that I have are in like France and Germany and like Spain and stuff. But um, <laughs> they're everywhere, but not Britain. Little side fact for you: not Britain, because uh, we're still under a gigantic sheet of ice. Ah, yes. <laughs> that would make it difficult. Yeah, very difficult. All the caves really deep underground, under ice. <laughs> Being formed, if you will, by the ice. So, um, like, Britain is slowly coming out of, um, and, and I do this motion that people can't see, but, like, coming out of the ocean as the ice cap melts and rolls backwards, you get this thing where the ground actually comes up. So part of what... Um, ice sheets do when they they um form on land is they actually push the land down yeah in the crust of the earth and then as the ice cap melts not only are you becoming uncovered because the ice is melting but you're also beginning to float back up again out yeah. of the, the mantle so you are actually literally being squished by all this heavy ice so britain is pretty much still half squished at this point it's too cold um to, to really, I mean, I mean, I'm sure people probably went over and went, oh no, it's too cold, and then went back again. But yeah, this um, is miserable. No way. Yeah, and I think there's like, there's like an example of like one burial somewhere. If I'm remembering correctly, someone might correct me. I think there's like a burial that's credited to the really late on in the Upper Paleolithic, like Magdalenian. Yeah, I know. Wasn't that a sexy word? That was really hot. Yeah, it was probably the wrong, <laughs> the wrong one. But we're gonna go with it. Uh, uh, this cave that I think might have been accessible during the Upper Paleolithic. So it's like a really rare exception. Yeah, so it might be worth saying that. Fact check, future Danielle here. 
About five minutes after recording, I remembered this example was the Red Lady of Parviland. The Red Lady of Parviland is an Upper Paleolithic partial skeleton of a male died in red ochre and buried in Britain 33,000 years ago. The bones were discovered in 1823 by William Buckland in an archaeological dig at Goat's Hole Cave, also known as Parviland Cave, a limestone cave in South Wales. The remains were at first thought to be a British Roman era female, however more recent analysis indicates the bones were of a younger male. Goat's Hole was occupied throughout prehistory. Artifacts are predominantly Aurignacian, but also include examples from the early Mosterian and later Gravatian and Criswellian periods, not Magdalenian. The site is the oldest known ceremonial burial in Western Europe. Right, now back to the podcast. No cave art in there, so let's come back to Europe. Um, so what's this got to do with magic, right? So let's yeah. get my head back, back in there. So why have I given you all this background about Upper Paleolithic environs um because one of the theories behind cave art is that it is a form of magic oh they are there's two things and they're they're inter interconnected these two things so one of the theories behind cave art is that it is sympathetic magic and sympathetic magic, as much as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, Melanie, is that sympathetic magic is the kind of magic that influences another thing or person. So mm-hmm. it's a specific kind of magic that is meant to influence something else. Yeah. Not not the self. So it's not like a luck spell or um or, you know, like <laughs> but you're not talking about yourself. You're talking about influencing another thing. Sympathetic yeah. magic. On, on usually like on behalf of someone else so it's like it's not on behalf of yourself yeah so it would be on behalf so the person or persons making this art is creating a uh, piece of work which is actually a spell meant to um influence a hunt yeah so this is sympathetic magic in that you are not going to be a participant in the hunt. You are a uh, specific type of person, which I'll get into in a minute, who is creating this spell in order yeah. to um, um, aid the hunters in their hunt. So if you look at um, panels at Lascaux, for example, or Altamira, any of these really famous um cave painting sites in Europe, um, particularly in France, you get just thousands and thousands of animals. And they're all the animals that are native to those areas. So they're, mm, let me actually say, they're mostly animals that are native to those areas. Get into that as well, a little bit as well. So you get woolly mammoths, you get um, woolly rhinos, lions, you get gazelles and hyenas and crocodiles and things that are are for those places uh different kinds of birds if you go to africa you get different types of bird things going on and so the idea is that this is a type of animism yeah the reason i bring up animism is because um archaeologists have used this thing called um ethnographic analogy yeah, in yeah. order to try to 
um, explain the unexplainable, if you will, of, of the past. And they sort of look around at cultures that are around today and see if there's any similarities between the way that they conduct themselves and the way that the evidence suggests that the people conducted themselves then. And just look for parallels. And a lot of the things that we see in the archaeological record to do with cave art really does parallel um, behaviours and beliefs and um, traditions and rituals, if you will, of cultures today that live um, as a hunter-gatherer lifestyle still um, and worship, not worship, that's the wrong word, believe in um, a type of system that uh, is broadly defined as animism. And what animism is, is that all living things have a soul. Mm-hmm. Every living thing is a soul and everything is equal. Um, but it's much more magical than that. It's like the spirits between animals and people can be interchanged and um, you can communicate telepathically with animals. And um, there's a lot more like symbiosis and um, um, cooperation and a lot more like sort of like think about it literally like if you could see my hand movements and I'm gesticulating like like <laughs> I don't even know how to explain it but essentially it means that things can go into me and I can go into it um, I can be a bear and a bear can be me and then I can go into the bottom of the sea and it's therefore you're not just you're not a, a, a person on this earth that is separate from the earth you're a part of it and everything is everything is just interconnected it's really um what's the word for it people make fun of it all the time um and it's hippy dippy kind of you know um, (laughs) well yeah and it's like where where some people would you know, call on God to help them through something. Animists would usually call on the spirit of, uh, you know, yeah, like a, a dolphin or, or a, a, you know, a jaguar or whatever to kind of get them through whatever their moment is and then feel that energy of that animal because an animal spirit is just as relevant, if not more so, than our own. It's all just, yeah, completely relevant and, and conscious and accessible. Yeah, and... and um. It is. It would be what we would see day in and day out is this interconnectivity between our actions and the actions of animals. So um, we wouldn't be able to separate ourselves from the actions of the animals because we have to follow them in order to be able to eat. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we have to uh, run away from them when they want to eat us. So we are connected with them and we are in no way superior, but also not inferior. But the spirit part of it, the magical part of it, that's a very particular um, talent to be able to commune with these kinds of spirits. And um, they, I want to say they like, they hire a guy. <laughs> but there, there is a dude or dudette who, whose job it is to manage those relationships between mm-hmm. animals and us and rocks and us and the wind in us and it's shamans yeah the word shaman is uh i think it's come from like um a siberian or mongolian word uh to describe this particular person so we use the term shaman but it's it's like a it's an umbrella term 
different um, hunter-gatherer groups will have different words for this particular individual. Uh, so you probably heard like witch doctor. So that would be like a rough translation of what um, particular tribes use as their word for this person. But essentially shamans are uh, the messenger or the proxy yeah. between the spirit realm and reality that we live in the physical world and they communicate with the animal spirits and with the earth and everything like that sometimes they can become animals depending on the culture that you're looking at sometimes they can become the animal that they're having a conversation with sometimes they have to go and visit them in their spirit realms and in order to do that they have to conduct certain kinds of rituals one of those things is getting into like a trance state whether that be induced by some kind of uh hallucinogen or by um, a particular type of rhythmic drumming because actually drumming and chanting and things like that can put people in trances and especially the type of people that become shamans are particularly prone to these trans states. If you want to say that's because they are shamans, that is, of course, they're going to be sensitive to be able to go into a trance because that is what they do. Mm-hmm. Or you can say it's because the type of people that become shamans are mentally are predisposed, predisposed to, you know, but it depends on the type of person that you are and it depends on your belief systems, what you want to do there, or it can be a bit of both. Why not? There's a Voyager episode about that. Anyway. Well, isn't there also like the, there was some kind of uh, theory or, or um, uh, recognition that medicine, uh, like medicine men, medicine women, shamans generally tended to be, uh, schizophrenic or have yeah. similar mental disorder yeah 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 things like that yeah so it um yeah there has been western studies on the people that you know like the above you know like the above studying the below of yeah. cultures um and have said oh yes the type of people that are shamans are people that are uh, tend to be bipolar tend to be schizophrenic tend to be autistic tend to you know like they have mental what we would call mental disorders they have um uh particularly oh what's it called um it, this even um bled into western belief systems epilepsy so yeah 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 because people believe that epileptic people were close to god yeah and so that's kind of a i think that that might be a little bit of a leftover maybe a uh uh, what's it called a folk memory maybe yeah, yeah. Oh. well yeah anyway yeah shamans they're cool right <laughs> so shamans going... oh they're totally cool uh there's a really interesting story about um i think this is a t- uh again this is ethnographic um analogy but there was a pacific northwest tribe um, possibly the Haida or something along those lines um, were sharing one of their myths which talked about how they had not been able to um, hunt any animals for a long time. They hadn't caught any animals, anything, marine or land. And so they got the shaman to um, go into a trance state. And uh, this has nothing to do with cave art, by the way. I just find this really interesting. Uh, and um, in the trance, the shaman went down to the bottom of the sea to this whale god 
to her lair. I think she was a whale god, yeah. And um, she had her back to him. Mm-hmm. And um, her back to the other animals that were in the room as well. So there was other spirit animals in the room, like polar bears and salmon. And she had her back to everyone. And she looked like shit. She was, like, covered in dirt. And her hair was, like, all in front of her face. And she was, like, angry. And she was upset. And so the shaman's job was to try to work out what was wrong and to make her feel better. And what it turned out was that all the people had been breaking taboos. And Mm. every time they had broken the taboo, she had felt it personally. She was getting really upset. And so she was like almost like self-neglect. It was like she was getting covered in the... the, uh, She didn't want to look after herself. And she was also getting covered in the dirt that was their sins, if you will. Yeah. But they were breaking taboos. And so he cleaned her up and he promised her that he would tell everyone to stop, you know, breaking taboos and have everyone apologize for what they were doing and admit what they were doing. And he came back from the trance and told everybody, listen, uh, you guys have all been like breaking the rules a lot and she's pissed. So if you want her to let you hunt again and and be successful, you're going to all have to admit all of the shit you've been up to. And, yeah. uh, and apologize for it so this story is kind of a combination of how um first of all how much power they give to the animal spirits in their day-to-day life also how much power they give shamans in order to be able to communicate with them and also how that could be a bonding ritual for um, people within the tribe it could be a good way to air grievances um and and solidify um bonds between people because if you have to all admit the shit you've been getting up to and apologize for it so they might know what that that taboo was that was being broken maybe there was a marriage that wasn't working out or something you know what I mean? yeah so the shamans they work as therapy yeah exactly they work so much they do so much they're like an integral part of these tribes and that's found in examples all over the world yeah so there although there are a lot of problems with ethnographic analogy because you can't you can maybe compare cultures in space but maybe not time but you know there's a lot of really good argument to say that because this kind of animist idea is pretty consistent with hunter-gatherers and it makes sense to be consistent with hunter-gatherers because that is what they do they yeah that's, are that's how they survive hunting and gathering yeah um they would have this idea about having to be um thoughtful and conscientious of the animal world and of spirit world and magic and all those sort of things so this idea that cave art is a product of either this kind of sympathetic magic, which is a way of um, casting a spell before all of the guys go out. And I hate that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that again because I don't believe it for a second. You know, I don't. When all, <laughs> of the, when all of the hunters go out, no gender implied, to go hunting beforehand, you have a little, you have a little get together. Mm-hmm. you probably don't go in the cave to be honest because there's something that I've not quite talked about yet which is that these paintings are found in really really hard to reach places um, they're not at the, the front of caves like in North America you do get a lot of cave paintings on the face of caves Yeah, 
But the kinds of paintings in Europe, they tend to be, how do I put this? In pain of the ass, pain in the ass places, really, where you've really got to climb down in there. Sometimes you have to, like, go down really, really narrow bits where you're just sort of squeezing through in order to get to somewhere. I think there's, um, oh, hold on. I think it's Trafrerie. I don't know how to pronounce it because I can't speak French, but I think it's Trafrerie. <laughs> it's in France. Um, you have to literally like squeeze through a tiny, tiny space. So if it's sympathetic magic, it's being done by the magician or yeah. the shaman. Privately. Um, privately. Because uh, you're not going to get a crowd of people <laughs> in these places. There are really huge caverns. Um, look, um, Lascaux has a huge cavern, but that huge cavern is after a whole bunch of really awkward, um, what you want to call it, spelunking. Is yeah, yeah. Um, and so there's there's like theories about it being educational and I don't buy that so much because how the hell are you going to get little kids in the back of these really awkward games <laughs> and why yeah if you're just teaching them things why would you f- hide them you know yeah so the, the idea that it's where a shaman has gone and his like maybe there not his there no gender implied god <laughs> even I'm doing it um <laughs> It's because I've got a picture of a very particular shaman in my head and it tends to look male. Um, And it's one called The Sorcerer. I will put it up on social media um, after this episode is put up. It's called The Sorcerer. That's at Trafrerie in France. Um, And it's 13,000 BC. Yeah. Okay. And there's there's another little creature with it that looks like it's playing a musical instrument. And... um, it seems to be like it, I definitely kind of I, I definitely like this I, I sort of find it very romantic this idea that a shaman has gone into the back of the cave after you know spelunking for two hours um, <laughs> and he's got all these paints with him oh her it I don't know <laughs> them. the struggle and is real I know I'm trying to be woke. I'm trying. I'm trying my best. Um, I I can't help these gender normative terms that have been enforced on me for 34 years. I am trying. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um. Anyway. Uh. Yeah. So so these paints are. Oh, and I could go into like how they're made out of um like red ochre and um, charcoal and blah blah blah. But we won't. Anyway, they're made out of naturally occurring pigments. Yes. And then going into a going into a trance baby so we've got drums we've got fire going so imagine the fire on the side of the the the, ta- the, the cavern um walls and everything looks trippy and you know how fire looks even just out in the open how imagine how it looks like in a cave and you can't breathe because there's all this smoke and you're getting all kind of fucked up and you go into a shum you know go into a trance and paint on the walls these beautiful images of and I think they're beautiful images of the animals which you're communing with uh, for whatever reason, whether it be to um, bless a hunt um, so that they can get that woolly mammoth or to talk to the spirit animals um, of the lions to talk about where are you going next? Where are you going next on the fields? Because we're going to go where you go. We're not going to hunt you lions, but we're going to hunt the things that you hunt. So we want to follow you. 
so the idea is that the sharp that's the shaman's what do you want to call it like entrance point yeah yeah I'm also thinking like maybe for like that freehand mediumship thing where they're just trying to divine the future too, you know, just painting and, <laughs> and creating images as they go. Hmm. I have that Possibly. in my head too. Yeah. Yeah. Or the shaman could be sat in the middle of the cave shouting instructions to, yeah. <laughs> to his, their artist protégés going and draw me another bison. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and the, and the person draws a bison. Um, so the coolest thing about that is to me once you've painted this picture in your head um and there's lots of things i've missed there's, i've not even got into my um the stuff that i've got down on here about drugs anyway um it's but the coolest thing to me is that that happens like between 10 and 50 so 10 and 30 thousand years ago yeah there's still still evidence of it there and we can use these sort of analogies to kind of try to get an idea of what they might have been thinking when they produced these works of art um but there's also a thousand other theories that are just as good there's um there's ideas about how they are educational, like I said, or that they have to do with like um, fertility rituals. Mm. So they have actually got nothing to do with animals at all, but the animals represent different genders and different sexuality and different things that you go through, like a rite of passage. Or like, yeah, roles in the, uh, in the group. Yeah. So, I mean... Well, these are all really good ideas and they all kind of draw from like it's, ethno- it's called ethnographic parallel or an ethnographic analogy and it's an anthropological concept and it's really good it has its shortcomings though um yeah we've discussed it go- before i think yeah uh, there's i mean it's problematic from the start because it comes from a observational point of view so it, it comes from that sort of like they're the other kind of thing and that's already quite problematic but the, you know there is there is a lot of things that you could say do you know what actually <laughs> there there is entirely possible that there has been some kind of similar type manifestation of spirituality for thousands of years it might not be the same i mean it probably 100 percent definitely isn't the same now as it was um 10,000 years ago yeah um, you can't you can't look at the aboriginal you know australians and say that's how they've been practicing that religion for 50,000 years like 30,000 years you can't but what you can say is some form of that seems to be pretty spot on yeah the similarities are striking yeah and also it's very romantic and it's not patronizing i don't think to think that we were a lot more in tune with um the planet when we were together and i think it's also a lot more realistic but then again it's me looking through that western eye again but it's that sort of idea that we would have to have some kind of um logical relationship with the world in which we lived in and um why not it be the earth animals and spirit so yeah magic environment 
and the polar bears and me be equal be equal people equal yeah, people. yeah. <laughs> equal spirits yeah but yeah no I, I when I've I've read about all different theories about K-Bar and I do like um quite a lot of them and also I want to make it very clear that it's probably a combination of all the theories exactly yeah <laughs> so there's probably a little bit of shamans painting on walls to um uh you know uh bless a good hunt and to go into a trans state and to you know commune with the spirits but it's probably also a little bit of art for art's sake i'm just gonna have a little fun i'm gonna do some painting there's probably a little practice going on here or there there's probably a little bit of communication this is how we did the hunt look how awesome we did we chased them down yeah and it, pro- it probably varies from group to group too i think yeah. some people may be a little bit more like hey did you see those drawings this guy did i wanted to draw to see like okay so we killed like 10 bison here see how awesome that is and then you know not recognizing that the other group did it uh to bless a, tr- a hunt or to invoke a hunt or something exactly. like that that's another point is that people will have come across these things just like we've come across them and there's entirely possible that they just replicated it copied it Thought and it was cool. they had a yeah, thought it was cool, copied it, but actually their motivation is totally different than the group that was in there 10,000 years prior. Because, like I said, some of them are in really fucking hard-to-reach places. Yeah, and yeah. they've been painted in over long periods of time. We know this because we can date the calcified um, deposits. Yeah, on the, the mineral deposits. Yeah, on, on the top of them. So that you'll find that something was painted and then there was enough time, like 10,000 years, for it to completely get covered by the mineral, the calcium deposit, and then it get painted on again. Now, that, to, to think that that's the same people doing the same thing? Yeah, not likely. Stretch. Yeah, so, yeah, no, you've hit one of the points that I forgot to make right on the head there, which is this is over, also over a vast period of time Yeah. Um, where people are moving around the environment. Like I said, they're hunter-gatherers, they're moving around. They're coming back to the same sorts of places at the same sorts of time of year, but not necessarily every time and not every year. And these people are interbreeding with Neanderthals. They're having... Um, they're inventing new things. Their uh, their society is changing. The language is changing. Yeah. Um, and you know the, the rituals you know, are changing. The weather is changing. It's getting warmer. Mhm. So you know it's it's a really rich part of history um, that <laughs> I forgot. I really did like. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't. I haven't. I haven't studied prehistory um in my archaeology degree for about two years yeah because uh, i've 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 found my niche which is like historical um sort of contemporary um archaeology and heritage so i've come to like the modern eras and i forgot how fucking cool the deep past was man yeah deep past is neat cool yeah that's awesome love it yes <laughs> so hopefully you learn something i didn't get to everything but um I just think that that's cool. And, um, I, you know, we'll put some stuff on Instagram as well. Like yeah. the, um, like, what's he called? The sorcerer, which is another word for um, shaman. shaman. I'm sure you knew that, but yeah. <laughs> um, is there anything else I want to say? Oh, yeah. No, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, like, as as we're, we're trying this sort of new uh, method of just being a little bit more raw with it 
any points that we forget to throw in, we can throw onto our Twitter and our Facebook and, and stuff like that too. So yeah, yeah that's totally. <laughs> and if I get anything wrong, I'm sorry. It's because I'm kind of winging it a little bit, but I would really like you to write in and tell me um, when you said this thing, it was kind of a little bit off. I'd actually really enjoy you giving me some constructive criticism. Call us out. And I know that my bit is probably going to trigger the archeologist a little bit. So I, I already understand that. Um, yeah, I'm braced. I'm braced for it. <laughs> oh, well, I'll try to be good. I'm going to eat one of my silent marshmallows now. Um, <laughs> oh, silent snacks. Love it. All right. Oh, so apricot. Oh, that sounds good. Mm -hmm. Damn. Jesus. Apricot? Oh, God. Mm -hmm. You'd think orange or something. Um, yum, yum, yum. Okay. Sorry. All right. So my bit? Your bit. All right. My bit. A village in India, I believe uh, you said. Yes. So, nice. Surprise, surprise. This topic stumped me. Like Danielle mentioned, non-Western is a pretty vague description. So where do I start? Japan? India? Mongolian shamanism? Do I go into ancient magic practices? Modern? Also, as a practice in pagan, that takes influence from any magic that crosses my path. Do I delve into cultures and practices that have been woven into Wicca and other Western practices? Ah, how do I even research this? Like, as you can imagine, a Google search of non-Western magic is pretty fucking daunting. All right, <laughs> articles like The Exercising of Magic from Durkheim to Postmodern Anthropology and Magic, Globalization of the Magic Concept, probably fascinating reads. But I'm not you, Danielle, and I do not have the strength <laughs> of will to read through those. I've got Danielle, both of them bookmarked. I bet you do. <laughs> Danielle is the sassy smart one. I'm the enthusiastic cartoon goblin who nibbles up information and farts out, I don't know, screaming nuggets of thought. So I found my way to about a dozen interesting things, um, but one stuck more so than the others. And a little side note here, as a practicing witch, I do have a different relationship with the word magic. To me, magic is a really practical thing you know, sticking a penny in the shoe, you know, it's, it's not like big wafting, floating vapors of magic, you know, it's, it's different in my head. So I'm trying to keep that in mind. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So with all of that in mind, what I have found is a village in India. Um, and firstly, let me tell you some things that I learned. The Latin term magi is believed to refer, refer to Zoroastrians during ancient times. Zoroastrianism is one of the world's oldest continuously practiced religions based upon the teachings of Iranian-speaking prophet Zoroaster, also known as Zorathustra or Zorathost. Long story short, its basic principles are like many others, duality of good and evil, predicting ultimate conquest of evil, uh, worshiping a single god while not denying the existence of other uh, possible lower deities, which is a neat word I didn't know about, which is uh, henotheistic. I knew monotheistic, I knew polytheistic, but henotheistic is that one divine god, possibly some other lower gods there too. Thought that was thought that was neat. Um, so they believe in life after death, heaven and hell, free will. Um, they actually have possible roots dating back as far as the second millennium BCE. It enters recorded history in the fifth century. It's believed to be the root of many religions, such as Second Temple Judaism, Gnosticism, Christianity, the Baha'i faith, and Buddhism. So this was just kind of like a fun little fact that I learned as I was going through uh, Indian magic, specifically. It's also believed that the three wise men were actually Zoroastrian priests. 
Nice. Cool. Yeah. So, India. India has a long, impressive history of pumping out some of the greatest magici- magicians of all time. Illusionists, um, sleight of hand trickery, uh, but of course the history runs a lot deeper. Indian magicians in ancient times were considered workers of legitimate miracles, not just conjurers of cheap tricks. Sorry, couldn't resist a Gandalf moment. Uh, <laughs> they used charms, amulets, talismans, even fortune tellers. Fortune telling in India goes back as far as the Roman Empire. But what I really want to talk about is this little village called Mayong. Small, inconspicuous, in the district of Assam in India. It was actually surprisingly hard to find some actual history on the place. It was impossible. It was near impossible. Uh, like, But here's what I found. So it, some say it got its name from the Sanskrit word Maya, which means illusion. Some people say that it uh, comes from another word that means elephant because uh, large wildlife runs rampant there. They're actually, it's right actually right next to the biggest, um, what's the word, animal sanctuary, wildlife the park. It's like an animal sanctuary reserve? For, for rhinos, like reserve. Yes, it's got the largest population of Indian rhinos um, right next to it. Uh, but no hit written history exists on the founding of this village or anything. Mayang is considered to be the black magic capital of India, the cradle of black magic. Mention of Mayang goes back to ancient mythological epics like the Maha- Mahabharat, which is an impro- important source of information on the development of the Hinduism between 400 and 200, uh, 400 BE and 200 CE. Um, it's regarded as Hindus as like the text, the history of Dharma, moral law. It's like really important text that mentions this village. It's an epic poem. It's like seven times the length of the Iliad and the Odyssey combined. <clears throat> the story says in the Mahabharat, Mahabha, yeah, Mahabharat. I'm sorry if I fucked that up, you guys. I'm trying. But the story in that goes that the chief, oh, I can say this name. Chief Gatochika took part in the Battle of Mahabharata after attaining magical powers from the village of Mayang. Stories of people turning into birds, animals created out of nothing, out of leaves, and the taming of ghosts are just some examples of not only what is believed by people outside of the village, but retold as history and fact by the people currently in it. According to folklore, even the Mughals feared this territory because of its black magic. One story tells of Muhammad Shah sending an army of one lakh horsemen, which is 100,000 horsemen, through the village only to have them vanish without a trace. Now, of course, none of this is verifiable. Um, It's even said that older saints and witches of the ancient battles still shelter in the jungle there. And according to anyone in India, this village, like I said, cradle of black magic all throughout India, this place, spooky ass place. Do people live there? In modern day, my young, black magic is no longer practiced. It is a small village with about 100 magicians and healers that are called Bez or Oja, which are like the shamans of the village. Um, They use mantras and tantras to treat ailments and medical conditions. One treatment is to use a copper plate to treat back pain. And it's, it's just kind of like stick it to your back. 
and um, it's supposed to just like pull the pain out of your back and it'll shatter if somebody's in extraordinary pain. Mm. Um, yeah, and it's copper, so I, I that's it's got to be some impressive pain. Um, some say the Bez tame ghosts to help them in this service. Another service they provide is finding lost objects by placing a flower in a bowl or plate and then placing the dish on the ground, and then the dish will move on its own in the direction of the item that's being sought after. They can even help a person who is possessed by evil spirits. This is this is a place to go to get some healing yeah. done. You know what I mean? And this is this is modern day. This is current. Um, there's a museum, the Mayong Central Museum, that houses all kinds of artifacts of this magical village. Old artifacts, manuscripts, art depicting stories, weapons. They've got, uh, you know, murals telling the tale of uh, this, this uh, one Bez um, taming a tiger using just mantras, uh, which is just like spoken spells, spoken, spoken mm-hmm. incantations. They have hundreds of manuscripts written on palm leaf in uh, Brajali and Kaleo, but very, they're extremely well preserved, but almost nobody can read them. Um, and a lot of the younger people in the village just have no interest in learning how to read them. So it's really kind of sad because once the the elders in this village pass, a lot of this history is just going to just is gone. Um, but they do they do pass down stories, this the tales of of, you know, turning a leaf into a fish or turning, you know, an enemy into a toad. They, these these are things that they believe this is their history. They will tell you their great great uncle did this because they've all lived in this and it's and it's not like a fancy village it's a shabby little you know village in india it's 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 not uh like pristine you know what i mean and it's not well off financially right now it's it's surviving on the tourist trade people who are coming going oh i want to see the the cradle of black magic in india and then they're greeted mm. with just healers with copper plates but i mean those tourists are keeping them there it's it's the only reason that that village is probably still functioning so we've got to be grateful to the tourists in this case um excavation of and near the village have turned up significant evidence that humans were ritualistically sacrificed in the past um kind of boldening the the claims that this place was just this evil cradle of black magic um because only if you engaged in human sacrifice i mean that's like the ultimate black magic thing to do um especially in in india and in, in their culture and the way that they perceive magic so yeah it would be viewed as an early place to go for a long time and these these are remains from thousands of years ago now i mentioned that black magic is no longer practiced there but along with the healers and the coolest lost and found service i've ever heard of is mm. a plethora of street magicians so you have your healers and your shamans but then you have also the guys who are pouring water on a newspaper and then folding it up and then there's no water there you know (gasps) or or they unfold it and they fold it back up and then water pours out of it um there's some really cool tricks that a lot of people are just like i still have no idea you know i i understand how street magic works and i have no idea how they did this um one trick is to pull out a blanket and throw uh rice on it and and then they just shake it a bit and then they have fully cooked rice yeah kind of kind of neat tricks like that but i mean it's it's basically street magic and they'll tell you it's like oh these are tricks this isn't the magic you're looking for this is just some fun stuff on your way to go getting you know a plate on your back 
Um, so there's not much to say about them other than I love them and I love street magicians and I, I thoroughly condone this. So, but like I said, my bit is pretty short. This is almost the end of it. But before I end this, I do want to bring up a slightly heavy bit of fact too. And that is that magic and witchcraft are a huge no-no in India. Like huge no-no. I feel like this village kind of got away with it. I mean, it's it's in the, the province of Assam, which um, is notorious for witch hunts. Um, and this village, I feel like, can kind of get away with it because of its history as like just being full of sorcerers. I would not fuck with this village if I were somebody who was hunting witches. Would not fuck with. Um, but, and I think like their legacy sort of implies protection. But in India, witch hunting was common practice all the way up until 2015. And this isn't like government mandated witch hunting. This is just like in a village, um, your neighbor is being a bitch, so she must be a witch. And they they would interrogate, they'd torture, and they would kill them. Um, between 1999 and 2015, over 26,000 people, mostly women, were tortured and murdered for being witches. And that is mm. a gross underestimate because, you know, not everybody who murdered somebody is going to say it's because they were a witch. You know what I mean? Mm. So, yeah, I mean, the fact that Mayang still exists as a as like a, a center of magic is really impressive, especially considering the the extreme lengths that they go to uh for witchcraft and of course yeah like i said they're, they're almost all women and there are a lot of women who survive these trials and tortures um and we're just like we just we were able to just, if we gave them all our land they wouldn't kill us as witches and that that happens a lot there too it's heartbreaking I would say that if there have been cases as recently as 2015, that it isn't over like that. No. I don't think that I don't think that there's been um, enough of a time between to be able to say they don't do it anymore. No, they they do still do it. It's just there's not been a recorded one for six years. That's all. Yeah. Well, what it is <laughs> is that the law that they put in place now, there wasn't a law to protect the, right. the people. So that now there's a law where if you're killing somebody on behalf of being a witch, you I mean. Whereas before they're like, okay, well, if she was a witch, it's fine. But now the ghost, she was a witch. It's like, hey, still can't kill her. Is is the law as it is written right there's, now? There's still places in um, Africa where, um, you know, like albino people are. Yeah. You know, uh, so yeah, no, I, I, yeah, there's still witchcraft, still witch hunting, and things like that going on now. It's pretty tragic. So yeah, that was my bit. Yeah, I was going to ask you questions. Are you in the capacity to answer questions? Absolutely. Cool. Okay, so one of my questions is, um, you said, and I bet you know exactly what I'm going to ask about, you said that archaeologists have been there and they have um, excavated human graves and that there is a suggestion that there were human sacrifice. What, what was what was the suggestion? What was the evidence that they were, they were human sacrifice rather than just death by other uh, violent means? Um, it was the weapons that they found. They were not the type of weapons used in um, practical homes, and it was not the type of weapons that were used in battle. They were decorative. They def definitely seemed to have a ritual purpose. In, in the sense that, yeah, it, it, they weren't 
you can look at battle. They they could dig up battle weapons and they can dig up these ones, these knives that had um, clearly some other purpose than function or uh, battle. And that seemed to be the biggest qualifier as far as what I could read. But you you can't find much. It is really mm. surprisingly hard to find information other than people going like, I went to this really cute village and it's like supposed to be like the seat of all evil. And I met like a jung- juggler and it was super neat. You know, it was just travel bloggers, just, just hundreds yeah. of fucking travel bloggers. But I mean, that's what's keeping the city going, uh, this village going. So, you know, that there's a reason for that. But as Did far it- as like the actual history, I'd have to dig a lot deeper than I had the time to. Yeah, that's fair. Did they, did you happen to know when the excavations took place? No, but I can Google it real quick. I got nothing to do. I can always look it up later. It's just that when archaeologists or anthropologists or any kind of like person historian describes something as a ritual and talk about ritual sacrifice. Yeah, I know. There, there's usually some kind of indication beyond the the you're saying weaponry which would be definitely a kind of very old-fashioned way of um justifying that interpretation but there's lots of different like i've got pretty knives you've got pretty knives decorative knives so mm-hmm. knives can be decorative De- uh, knives can or weapons can denote wealth or status or identity or you know role within a society and things like that doesn't necessarily mean that you're using it to slash the throats of witches yeah no and, and this, <laughs> they're, they're, they're suggesting that they weren't used for like witch hunts they were used for you know i i don't know that's fine. I just I I was curious if it was from the seventies, basically eighties ish. Oh yeah, yeah, fair enough. Let's see. Also, it's um, very um, it's very uh, what's the word? Uh, trendy now to be like, don't use the word ritual. Like, yeah, no, I know. Don't use the word. But I've come full circle. I did. I went through that. I went from liking the word ritual to being like, I don't like using the, using the word ritual because ritual is too vague of a word. Da, da, da. And I've come all the way around to ritual does exactly what it says on the tin. You say the word ritual, people know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's that's why I'm all like, I'm gonna write this in because this is just part of the information that I found. But I know. I know linguistically this is problematic and I don't have a lot of data to back it up, but it's it's only because the idea of ritual is blurred because people think ritual has to be like spiritual and it has to be magical and it has to be like that. But rituals are actually mundane as well. But because you caveated your belief in magic as being a practical thing, Mm -hmm. I know that you don't think ritual always means, um, like a cult basically i know that you don't mean that it is a kind of magical practice that ritual can also mean um something that you do day in and day out because it's your routine your yeah. ritual um but it's a lot more rooted in your sort of um um it's it's like the, the your practical everyday activity is not separate and a completely different entity from your spiritual self. They are one and the same and they interact in this, you know. So, you know, um, oh, really good example is when I used to smoke cigarettes. Yeah. I used to count how many times I flicked the ash off. Okay, yeah. Okay? 
And so I know that this is more like an obsessive behavior and I'm working on it, therapy, but it was ritual to me. So here I am doing a mundane task, which is having a cigarette, which is, a, you know, like it's an everyday occurrence, but I'm counting one, two, three, every time, one, two, three. Yeah. You don't know that ritual's happening, but it's happening in my head. And I would always know when I've not done it three times. Oh always. yeah, or when or when we pack a pack uh pack a pack of cigarettes and uh, pull a lucky, you know, like that was ritual. That was the yeah. ritual we did. We engaged in every time. Oh uh, God, I don't do that anymore. God, that's mad. I haven't done that in years because I started rolling my own cigarettes. So yeah, I, have... I kind of Ooh. miss having a lucky. Shall we um? Shall we bring it to a close? Yeah, let's wrap this up. So if you liked this, if you like anything that we've done in the past, if you have any ideas for what you would like to hear in the future, please hit us up on our Twitter, our Instagram, and our Facebook at Zombie Fishbowl or Zombie Fishbowl Podcast. We are easy enough to find. Um, also, you can hit us up at our email, zombiefishbowlpodcast at gmail.com, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's been a while, sorry. Um, we have yet to get like a single freaking email from you guys. Just just send us an email just saying, like, what's up or something, you know? You know, we just get junk from freaking um, Squarespace, and we haven't even launched the website yet. I know. <laughs> I spent a lot of money on that website. Anyway, um, we love you. And, Danielle, do you want to hit us up for our next topic? Yes, I'm just getting the random topic picker up now. Random topic picker, random topic picker. It's a random topic picker, and it's going to pick a topic. Ow! Ooh, Melanie. <laughs> what about paranormal television shows? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like Ghost Hunters. Give me Ghost Hunters. <laughs> yeah, like, um, oh gosh, what's the infamous British one? Um, uh, oh God, with Yvette Felding. Um, um, oh man, I can't think of what it's called now. Um, Most Haunted. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm, give me some junk to watch. Yes. Just, just, just a little disclaimer here. I absolutely hate paranormal television shows because, on the one hand, I'm fascinated, and then on the other hand, I know that it is all 100% fake. Yeah, yeah. Oh God, it infuriates me, and I love it. I'm very excited. That's got all the ingredients of a um random spike in listeners right exactly it's got the word paranormal and tv shows <laughs> so i do have a quote um to see us out if you'd like me to yes please yes. i wrote a quote too because i wasn't sure who was supposed to do the quote so oh probably you but we can, we can both do one i was gonna say we can both do one okay I went and I was looking at lots of like quotes about animism so that I could um, explain animism from the mouth of an animist, which was all, you know, I had good intentions, but instead I ranted for three quarters of an hour, I think, or half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> but this one I wanted to make sure that I said because um, it's really poignant and relevant. All right. Okay. Bring it on. Life. Okay. Life is a planetary level phenomenon, and the Earth has been alive for at least 3,000 million years, probably longer. To me, to me, 
The human move to take responsibility for the living earth is laughable. The rhetoric of the powerless. The planet takes care of us, not we of it. Our self-inflated moral imperative to guide a wayward earth or heal a sick planet is evidence of our immense capacity for self-delusion. Rather, we need to protect us from ourselves. Lynn Margulis, who's an animist. Now, at first when I was reading that, I was like, whoa, is she talking about how we like shouldn't be trying to save the planet and like recycling and shit? No, what she's saying is it's arrogant of us to believe that we're destroying the planet and what we need to do is save the planet. What we need to do is save ourselves from ourselves. We need to do this because we are the problem and we are the solution to our own problem. Yeah. And I totally get what she's saying there because we've got this like really fucking arrogant way of looking at it but let's just put it this way if the planet killed us all off the planet would heal and the planet would be fine yeah yeah absolutely so she's literally just saying like if you want to stay on this planet you want to stay living on this planet we don't save the earth you have to save yourself we have to save ourselves yeah totally right she nailed it actually i'm saying she because lynn to me is a lady's name but we don't know what we don't know. I assumed her gen- I assumed their gender. <laughs> well, bravo. Right, thank you. So yes, that's from an animist point of view because animists also believe in you know the earth being a diversity. Anyway, go- what's your quote? My quote comes from Will Durant, who is an American writer, historian, philosopher, and advocate for women's suffrage and equal wages in the early 1900s. And his quote is, Underneath all civilization, ancient or modern, moved and still moves a sea of magic, superstition, and sorcery. Perhaps they will remain when the works of our reason have passed away. Ooh. Uh. This is a dis- dissonance there. Well, Quite a lot of the quotes that I read um, were talking about how science and uh, spirituality do not need to be mutually exclusive. No, yeah. So, and, and I agree, and but I think that we get wrapped up in our scientific progress and and uh, discard a lot of other things as just flights of fancy, and that yes. that shouldn't be guilty. <laughs> <laughs> so with anyway, that. Right. My little undead fishies, we love you so much. We will be here next time to speak about ridiculous paranormal television, and I very much look forward to it. <sighs> that was a yawn, because it's 11 o'clock at night, and I'm ready for bed. So, um, <laughs> everybody, thank you for listening. If you've got this far, you're a proper fan, and we love you, and uh, have a nice rest of your day, or whatever you're up to. And um, stick in there. It Stick it, Hang in there. (laughs) Yes, be safe, wear masks, we love you, drink lots of water, take care of yourselves, and we will see you next time. Bye!